welcome to the Rebel Educator Podcast, where we talk to students, educators, and thought leaders who are innovators and creatives in education. I'm your host, Tanya Sheckley. Thanks for joining us. Editor-in-Chief of Superintendent's Journal and a Professor of Education on the Future of Learning and Work, Freedom Chicheni, is a globally renowned thought leader and keynote speaker. Silicon Valley Inventor creates future-ready transformational models and applications for individuals and organizations alike at a global scale. He's a leading exponential thinker in academic and corporate communities and is currently engaged in rigorous implementation of ideas, solving humanity's most pressing problems. With leading institutions such as Stanford, MIT, the National University of Science and Technology, and many others. As a creator of models, Freedom provides new paradigms to thinkers and practitioners in fields as diverse as exponential leadership, the future of work, educational transformation, exponential technologies, third world development, XR leadership, movement thinking, and community building. Freedom has written many scholarly papers about many of these, as well as moonshot thinking. He's lectured at university and schools such as Stanford, Design Tech and Oracle, among others. Thank you, Freedom, for being here. Thank you. And I am so excited about your work and all the cool stuff that you're doing and what that means for the future of education, and especially this moment in time when we're really stepping away from a traditional model and all of the constraints of seat time and classroom time and standardized tests and all of these things are falling away, at least in this country. And and your model and what you're building is so much larger than the U.S. constraints. It's super exciting. And I, I want to hear all about that. I also think it's important that we talk about the other things that are happening in the world right now. I, I feel like really be remiss if we didn't talk about the social justice issues and the protests and the riots and everything that's going on. Thank you for being here and your time and taking a moment and clearing your head from everything to be a part of this conversation. But I I really, really want to hear about your, your work with XR and VR and AR and what's happening in the world and how you're connecting those things. And also, maybe not now, but maybe later, have a conversation about how even my school might be able to use and access some of those things as we're building a distance learning program and what that can look like. Amazing. And I love what you're building. I looked at, you know, uh, Academy. And I think that there's something in your name when a student says, I'm going to up, it means you're always looking up. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the circumstance is. It doesn't matter what the situation is. Exactly 11 years ago, at this time around, I was beginning um, a new teacher assignment through the new teacher project. And I was over um, at Stanford. And then I got an email that up north in California, in Northern California, their tribes, the, uh, the mountain Mairu people, they are looking into creating a new school, one that would be able to meet the needs of the native child, because most of them are not graduating. In fact, an accomplishment was a grade. And so I looked at that request and I dropped everything. So I said, I want to do that. I want to go there. 
So I dropped Oroville and I arrived at the uh, Feather Falls Casino that is the Konkao uh, Mighty People. Um, and I met up with Tribal Council. They take me to the mountain and there's a very old building. It's maybe a hundred years old. And they say, this has been abandoned for a long time. We want the school to be here. And this land is sacred. It's along the river, the Feather River. The Feather River is wild. It follows a particular history of California and perhaps even of the world. And so the tribal elders took me around it um, and I could see the acorns. I could see the boulders where they would make parabola, the carved parabolas to grind the acorns and remove the tannins and things like that. And by being able to live in the reservation and be with the people, I realized something fundamental, the idea that maybe the tribes have not been heard, that maybe the native people have not been heard, that maybe what really happened centuries ago when they were slaughtered um, and their land was taken away, maybe healing is not yet completed. And maybe that is the reason why the kids are so repulsed by the current education system because that happened and healing never really happened. And things were forced onto them. Tribal trust lands were created and casinos were invented as a way to wrong the rights. But that was also a band-aid. Putting them in the reservation and saying, you can now run these casinos Yes, it looks really good, but that is still not freedom. So on my first day of class, I had 16 kids um, from the three different tribes, the Estom Yumeka people, uh, the Tai Mairu people, and the Konkao Mairu. So the three tribes had collaborated. They came together to solve this. And I remember Wes Marshall saying, but Mr. Free, when I'm 21, I'm going to be getting this tribal per capita from our casino. Why should I go to college? I'm more concerned about Leonard Peltier. Um, and I am from the Pomo tribe. And Crazy Horse, that's what he named him. Uh, and I later learned that Crazy Horse, that's his real name, from the uh, Lakota tribe, has been imprisoned for all this time and he needs to be freed. And so I want to work on that. I said, well, Wes, your project for this year will be figuring out how to free Peltier. And we had an event where I got this, you know, you see this sweater here? It says free Peltier right here. I haven't worn this in like 20 years. So I, I, as I was, when I woke up today, I sent Wes a message. I was like, oh, I looked at something to wear for my interview this morning. And what I saw was this. I wonder if it still fits me. And it still does. <laughs> it still does. And for that year, we had, we did put together, you know, a portier, a program, uh, a club. You know, we wrote to him. Uh, Wes did that. And he took control of that. Um, and what's happening today is not something new. What's happening today is has been happening uh, for centuries. And it's because we now have 
this technology, when we are capturing it in forms of pictures, in terms of videos, such that if it was not exposed, those things will go under the rug, just the way they have been for the longest time. Because people are now exposed, they can now explore, people have been empowered, they've been given the freedom to figure out what information is accessible, what to do about it, and the protests that we're having right now. 53 years ago, Dr. King, on the Stanford campus, mentioned that really, when he wasn't so much talking about the protests, but he was talking about the riots. Then when a protest becomes a riot, or when a riot is just a riot, it happens. That is the language of the unheard. What's happening yeah. right now is a call to action to really hear, really hear what the Black people have gone through and are going through, to really hear what the Native Americans have gone through and are going through. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> and I've been looking and researching and and it's it's a culmination definitely and you know Dr. King was talking about it years ago it happened with the Rodney King riots 25 years ago and and this seems to continue to happen in cycles. And so I mean obviously I I'm not a part of that population. And so I think myself and a lot of my friends are wondering, like, what do we do and how do we fix this? You know, what do we do differently from here on out to help to make a change in the world so that people are heard and people are valued and people do get equitable opportunities? And how do we make that happen? Because clearly everything that the government has been doing and that society has been doing isn't working. And I think that there are a lot of good people who are trying and doing the wrong things. And so a lot of us, I think, are really struggling with that going, okay, we're, we're doing the wrong things. What do we do? What are the right things? How do we start to fix this? And I, I think the beginning is probably just giving people a voice and being heard and asking, you know, instead of trying to fix it from a systemic side, really asking the questions of, What's really going to help? What's really going to make a difference? How, how can we best support you? And how do we work together? How, like, how do we get through this? Well, I appreciate that. I think the key, I think the key really is what you said, be heard. If we can create systems and infrastructures where everyone is heard, where everyone feels heard, that is the beginning of the healing process. I feel like the only way at this point to fix it is not really fixing it. There's nothing to fix. What happened, happened. We have to acknowledge the injustices that exist and be responsible for our role in that because it doesn't really help when we are being otherized. How might we make it equitable for you, Freedom, how might we make it equitable for you, Wes? It's like this us and them uh, situation. And I think that that is a problem uh, when we otherize each other. And the key really 
is not otherizing one another. I think the key is really hearing one another, seeing one another up close, like really seeing one another up close and getting what it is that I am going through and being compassionate. What is needed right now is a compassion revolution. It is the only thing that's going to transform the world, that's going to transform our education system, that's going to transform our workplace. It is a, is a, it, it has to be a revolution. Anything less than that is not going to work. Any model or framework that's out there is not going to work. One of the models that I've used myself, I was happy that you talked to Esther. I helped develop the trick model. In fact, most of it I defined. And the idea of that book was my idea. I've got my kids, I sit down in this class, and they framed the idea of the book, what should the book be called? So the kids were already part of the process. Because I said, I think it's important for you to be able to share your experience. And I think that might make a difference. She's like, really? Like, yes, I think it really will make a difference. You should have a book about that. And that was how the book started. And there is trick, but there's also trick squared, which looks at trick as an exponential component, especially in these times. Mm -hmm. So yes, T is for trust is good. But I also think that time matters. Time matters. Because time is a promise. Now is the time to transform education throughout this pandemic with the lockdown. I think we are reminded that it is time to transform something. And how are we using that time to radically transform the world, to not go back to where things were, to create exponential results, to create an impact so that the kids, the adults, and everybody else who is impacted, which is literally the entire world, emerges out of this up, looking up stronger than before. You're no longer terrified by AI and all these other things. That is what this time is about. So you must trust that it is a time. And there's also the, the R for respect. I think being responsible is better. And by being responsible, I mean not being accountable. It means that you are the cause in the matter of your life. There is something that you can do and you cannot blame something, but you are the cause of something. And perhaps you can look into something that's much bigger, something much greater than yourself to really transform things. So, the, so being responsible is probably one of the toughest things that we need to consider you know, as we move towards this revolution. And I think everyone is responsible. That's important. Yeah, and I... I agree. And I think we need to be responsible for how we rebuild as a group. You know, I, I think a very American view is I'm responsible for me and I'm going to figure this out my way and I'm going to build what I want to build. But I think if we're really going to take this time and learn the lessons of collectively, we have had to shelter in place to do something as a group to slow the spread of a virus. Yeah. And collectively, there's a large uprising of people who haven't been heard and who are angry. And collectively, we're going to have to take that responsibility to move forward 
in a different way. And instead of looking at how can I make my life better, we're really going to need to look at how can we make the world around us better and what's the change that we want to see and how can we work to make that happen? Right. And who are, you know, who are my team members? How can I bring others into this vision? And how can we responsibly rebuild and move forward from here? Yeah, you know, and and as educators too, we are even more responsible today than ever before. Now think about all those kids that you've had in your classroom that you thought were not they were being disrespectful, they were not paying attention, they were being distracted. Um, be responsible that maybe the reason why they're acting that way is because you're not being responsible for something. Yeah, well, all, all behavior is an outward manifestation of something that's happening inwardly. And yes. so they're, yeah, they're, they're not being heard. There's something else happening. You know, something's going on that's creating that behavior and finding that, that root of the cause. Or like you did with your student with the Peltier project, you know, suddenly you've engaged kids who don't want to be in school, but now they have a purpose and they have a reason yes. and it makes sense and they want to learn because now they have a reason. And so finding that underlying cause of those behaviors um, is always important to, to help anyone move forward and change. Well, you just clarified a model that I was thinking about, uh, the FOIL model. So when I was thinking about mathematics, you know that the, when you were doing the, the, square, the FOIL process, mm -hmm. first, you know, first outside and then inside, right? When you're doing um, the expansion of your quadratics, you have two factors. They draw a square, you know, x, x plus y, x plus z, and then you multiply the two. So it's like a Punnett square. In math, as a math teacher, every math teacher calls it the FOIL method. That start off with the outside and then work inside out, and then mm -hmm. work inside. And that's how you can actually expand these two factors uh, into an expression. So it has to start from the outside. Look at the external environment to really impact what's inside. It is 100% not the genetics. It is the environment that impacts our behaviors and everything. When you change the environment, then you change the expression. That is how genes work. Some genes are activated, some are deactivated. When you're running, you're exercising, some genes are activated and some genes are silenced. So when we are intentional in changing the external environment, then we influence what's being expressed. What's being expressed right now is because of the environmental factors that are causing those particular genes to be expressed. Mm -hmm. Maybe creating an environment where you're being heard where the technologies we're using in our classrooms, in our workspaces, inherently allow the experience of being heard, then you're going to have a particular expression in your environment, in your organization, in that particular student, at whatever level of construction. That is why this has to be a compassion revolution. Without compassion, we can't 
fear one another. We can't fear one another. Yeah, it's one of the things we talk about a lot in an early education environment. I run an elementary school, so I have little kids. How do we set up the environment that's conducive for learning, that's conducive for connection, um, and that's conducive for collaboration? Because really, what we're teaching kids from a young age is their own social emotional learning of, you know, who am I and what is my place in the world and who are the people around me and what are their roles and my roles in relationship to them. And along with that, creating an environment where all of the kids can collaborate together and figure out, you know, what kind of projects and things they want to learn so the educator can help them facilitate that. Um, but it goes back for the very young age of building that environment of safety and of understanding who you are and then having everyone around you also understand who you are so you're understood and you're heard and you're safe and you're in a place where then you can really you know learn so much more and that is the greatest gift what you're doing is the greatest gift you can give to your child uh, we talk about mastery and competency based learning but true mastery is mastery of oneself when the kids feel safe, when they feel loved. I don't think that, I think trust comes in later. What should come first is love. When the kids feel loved, then trust is an expression. So trust is not something to teach. They must feel loved. And when they feel loved and cared for, then trust is a manifestation. Respect is a manifestation. Independence is a manifestation. Collaboration is a manifestation. And kindness is a manifestation. We cannot teach that. So that is the slight difference between how Waj looks at it and how I look <laughs> at it. Because uh, I think trick is a manifestation of those compassionate values. Well, Dr. Dottie, who wrote the book Into the Magic Shop, he is a Stanford neurosurgeon. Mm -hmm. who also went through a horrific time. Nobody believed that he could be a world-renowned neurosurgeon. He met a, uh, somebody named Ruth in a magic shop. He lived with parents, you know, who were drug addicts and things like that. And with a almost one point something GPA, did end up being at, you know, at, the, at a medical school. You know, as you now is. He's a professor of neurosurgery, but he's also practicing neurosurgery. Um, mm -hmm. He founded the Stanford Center for Compassion and Altruism Research, where the Dalai Lama is the initial um, benefactor there. Uh, so there's a program there for educators that I will, I'll send that to you. And I think he'll be so great to talk to you. And the alphabet of the heart is what he writes about from Ruth. That's with C, the 10 letters. If we can use that, like meditation and really changing the environment, the internal state, as a neurosurgeon, he has started that. And that really, there is a connection between the brain and the heart. And as a molecular biologist myself, by training, a neuroscientist by training as well, it made so much sense that all these other things are simply expressions of the environment that we're creating. And so there is so much power. Like imagine what you just did creating, what you did 
when you created an elementary school was to create something that's going to continue to build, something that is going to continue to transform a planet, something that is not only going to continue to transform a planet, but something that will now transform planets. I imagine that in the next five to 10 years, you will be sending permission slips for parents to sign if their kid can participate to go into space, to go to Mars. Those are the field trips of the future. We witnessed a miraculous event just a few days ago when the Falcon 9, the Dragon, took off. Yes, that's the happy news of the weekend. <laughs> My that, kids were glued to the screen. I don't know if you saw the dinosaur float by, but yeah. my six-year-old's like, they've got Stompy in space. He's got, yeah. a little one named, he named Stompy, <laughs> similar dinosaur. It's, yeah, it's what's happening is amazing. Um, that is their field trip. Consider that in the next five years, they are going to space. Well, I think they might be doing it on a VR headset in the next it's five years. Happening. I'm not sure if, uh, if they'll oh. be going in person. <laughs> oh, but that's that is the field. Well, they can do VR right now. Like I can, yeah. uh, they can do their photo trip. It's all recreated. I can show it to you. But in the VR school, they they go to. We meet on Mars all the time. Cool. Yeah, and we can go back to the classroom because now with the virtual, you know, with the virtual field trips, uh, you are now stimulating all kinds of senses, and I think that VR itself. Is an empathy machine. It's not a gaming machine. It's an empathy machine because you can now you can now bring those environments, bring those other communities in your world, and really be with them and understand and feel what everybody is you're feeling. Zoom doesn't do that. No. <laughs> Zoom is basically, or any other video conferencing tool especially bringing the old classroom into a digital space, but it needs to be interactive. So the future of school is that all, everything will be flipped. The buildings become, they become labs, they become maker spaces, and the kids are spending the rest of the week collaborating with uh, businesses and organizations, traveling to space and whatever else they're committed to. You talk of a dinosaur. I had a kid named Kellen who said, I like dinosaurs. I want to study that. I said, my promise is I'll find something for you. And he asked me to find him the fossil of a velociraptor. I went on Maui. And I am on the Honolulu Bay. I see a guy sitting. Uh, his name was Jim. And he's smoking and has like a jar. It's almost like he's asking for people to donate. So I went and sat down there. And... He was like, well, you're not afraid of me. Like, no, I'm not. So we begin to have a conversation. He says, well, I'm Jimmy. Um, and this entire bay has been in my family for the last 200 years. So just last week, my family just won a case against Dog, the pineapple company. They wanted to develop this. I'm going to show you. So he walks me around this jungle. Um, I can see the unmarked graves. And ultimately, I get to his place. He says, just hold on, I'll bring a box for you. He brings a box, and in this box are two fossils. He says, my grandfather used to collect fossils. These ones are Velociraptors, fossil eggs. He would like you to have them. I'm like, really? I held those things 
and they're 85 million years old, it was being in touch with the beginning of the world. It was something magical. I flew back. I said, Kellen, there you go, in front of the class. And they're like, what? <laughs> now, figure things out. In the next few hours, he came to me and said, oh, this guy is very, very upset. He's saying, we can't it was an expert in Montana. He is saying that those are all raptor fossils. Nobody has ever had velociraptors. I'm like, oh, he just confirmed they're dinosaurs. They are real. So congratulations. So the dinosaur eggs stayed in my class for a whole year until one day I was like, where are the eggs, Kellen? Like, oh, we took them to UC Berkeley. And they said that they should stay there to be studied. I'm like, so you were telling me that UC Berkeley took your fossil. Who did that? So he said, yeah, Professor Kellen gave me the name at the Museum of Paleontology. So I emailed them and they said, well, when the fossils came to us, we'd never seen anything like it before. The Paleontology Museum in Beijing, in Canada, in Mongolia are unanimous that these are velociraptor fossils which were actually born in the Henan province of China. So UC Berkeley can help, they can help. And we are talking to China to see if these can go to China and China can give us something because China is very, very excited about this discovery. This was a ninth grader. I believed that you want dinosaurs, I will get you dinosaurs. So as we speak, that fossil that was inspired by a ninth grader has been seen by over 40 million people. It's still at UC Berkeley. It's accessible to your kids. Those are the kinds of stories that I like to share because it happens 100% of the time when the kids are loved, when the kids are heard. I heard you. I heard you that you really, really love the Lost Raptors. And the chance encounter with Jimmy, I call him Uncle Jimmy now, was simply because I was thinking about my kids. I think about them all the time and I share of them. And you never know. My kid, Miriam, same thing. She inspired the VR school, homeschooled her. She was failing all her schools in traditional school, uh, her classes in traditional school in New York. And she came here for two years and I had to homeschool her. And she was severely dyslexic. She applied to exactly one school called Stanford. And I had an 18 page report that I don't do test scores. And this is what she wants to do. She got in, she got in. And she even got a personal note from Stanford that you've already accomplished so much. We hope you choose us. Why? Because when I homeschooled her, I heard what she wanted. She wanted to learn about VR, about AR, and we built a VR school. She's part of that process. She learned how to code on herself on YouTube. I got the support she needed. And now the VR school is, a, is an actual school. If you go to CDE, look at the VR school. It's a literal school in California, the first of its kind, simply because I heard. Mm -hmm. The first quarter at Stanford, you know what Stanford did? With they the saw how great she was at VR. She took a uh, the first course on VR. She was way, way better than the professors. They met her, the professor of that course. And she's just finishing the sophomore year. She's an official instructor for that course. 
simply because of things that she did on homeschool as a high schooler. Not only that, she also built a search engine that is better than Google, that searches things by concept. So those are some of the things. And then Elvis, whom I talked to yesterday, another one of my students who went homeschooled from China, he said, my mission is to create a new kind of mask. That was in 2017. Because my mother is in China and the pollution is so bad and her health is not good. Can I work with you? I said, yes. I see a community mom, but I also see a community of the world. A couple of weeks later, he got an offer from MIT to start freshman. And like, well, what do I do? I was like, well, it looks like you're really struggling. It looks like you really want to help your mother. You really want to help China. You want to solve this. Your mission is to create a world that is healthy and you want to invent this new type of mask. You can decline and work for a year. He declined MIT and work for a year with the Stanford Nano Fabrication Lab, with Brown and everywhere until he came up with a brand new material that is better than the N95 and filed for a patent on it. He was sophomore in high school. Fast forward, 2019, COVID-19 showed up. I'm looking at my emails and his requests and this project proposal. He created something called Oxy2. He named his mask Oxy2, O-X-Y2. And the masks were already being produced last year, way before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And he began to give talks on that mission. And he was just, they just acquired the technology, but he kept the patent for $20 million. He's a sophomore. He's a second year college student right now. And so I called him, I'm like, well, Elvis, pandemic has happened. And I think your mission from three years ago, this is your time to impact billions. He's like, well, Mr. Free, I'm in China right now and I'm working really hard. We're only able to make 250,000 masks at full capacity. We want to be able to make a million. And I'm thinking to myself that three years ago, I heard that kid. And today, he is impacting millions through the technology that he created. And in high school. In high school. <laughs> yeah, you, you have incredible stories. <laughs> ah, I forgot to tell you about Jibo. It's a social robot that my kids spend a year with. Inter- the more you interact with Jibo, the more intelligent and emotional Jibo became. I'll send you some articles and some videos. Yeah, what, what's its name? With robots. I had literal social robots learning with them. <laughs> That's cool. That is the future of school. It is, so, yeah. I mean, there's so many things that we can do from like having a little educational assistant robot to, you know, a lot of what I was reading about your work and being able to walk around and I'm picturing Google Glass and like having it just tell you you know, the history of the building, the history of where you are, the place in time, what happened on the land you're standing on 200 years ago, what yeah. types of animals roamed this before it was a neighborhood. Like, it, it, there's so much that we can do. And I think the challenge in a lot of ways is going to be how do we how do we retain the human connection? Because people learn from people. And in order to have that connection, in order to be heard, in order to share your hopes and dreams and interests and ideas, 
you still have to be connected to a person and that's going to be the challenge. And the thing I hear a lot when I talk about to other educators about flipped classrooms and blended classrooms, it's, well, now they're getting their information from a computer and from a screen, not from me. And that's scary for educators because they're losing that control of being the one with the knowledge yeah, um, yeah. and moving their role more into a coach and a facilitator. And so how do we shift our educational systems so that those educators can be that coach and facilitator um, and, and still retain that human element because, because we're human and we need connection. And if there's anything that these, you know, almost three months in semi-isolation have taught us, it's that we still crave connection. You know, that's why all of us are on our Zoom and complaining about Zoom fatigue because we want to see and talk to other people. And so maintaining that is, is going to be a challenge. I think the future of teaching itself has changed. I think even being a, a coach or facilitator is already antiquated. I think teachers and educators should now look, that, look at themselves as learning engineers. Think of a car. <laughs> It has all these different parts and they're being made from all kinds of places and somebody engineers and put together that this is a Tesla. This is an Xterra. This is a BMW. This is a student. <laughs> no, I, I yeah. love the concept. I love the idea because that's a lot of what we ask our educators to do is to figure out the student interest, look at what standards they need, where the student strengths and weaknesses are, where they are as a group and collaboration, and then build a project around those aspects. Yeah, That's standards, exactly what they're too. doing. Yeah, standards, are, standards need to be specific to the niche. I think one of the things that I'm doing um, is I've reinvented the university. I've, I'm, I've built a university called X, uh, the research university. Instead of declaring majors, you declare missions, and your mission guides what you do. So imagine a world where, like your kids when they're in college, what's, the, what's, what's, what's their names? Uh, my little one is Keller, and my middle daughter is Breda. Okay, and my son is Patrick. So let's say the three of them um, are in a class in the future. Keller, what, what's your verb? Oh, my verb. My verb is impact. I am studying, I am studying biology to create a world that is healthy. My mission is to create a healthy world. Patrick, what's your verb? My verb is justice. And I'm studying criminal justice to ensure that people are more connected, that they hear one another. So instead, of talking about majors, they're talking about missions, and each student has their own personal board of advisors who will support them towards their mission. That's radical personalization. From an elementary perspective, the shift that we take is instead of asking our kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? It's what problem do you want to solve yes. when you grow up? Yes. And so getting them from a very young age to start thinking about how they look at the world and what what impact they can make. How can they influence action on the world around them? Amazing. That is the exact equivalent of the future of college. What problem do you want to solve? Or what problems do you want to solve? And then structure the curriculum around that. They're going to build things. You don't know if they're going to build the 
the next you know, mask that's going to save the world from COVID-19. But hear them out. Hear the problems that they want to solve. It's their future. Let them solve the problems that they're living into or growing up into. Yes. Well, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you for what you've created. I can't wait to be up. Yeah, I, I can't wait to invite you and show you around um, yes. and share our, our vision and mission and what we're building. And I'm committed to your mission. I love it. We need up everywhere. Thank you. Um, yeah, I'm excited about how we can make up everywhere. <laughs> Let's do that. All right. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank Have you, an Naya. awesome day. You too. We'll talk soon. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Rebel Educator podcast. To learn more about us, visit rebeleducator.com, where you can learn about our professional development opportunities for educators and students and see our project library. If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, check out our progressive, inclusive elementary school, Up Academy, at upacademysf.com. We'd like to say a special thank you to Atmosphere, for use of their audio track, Miho. Thanks again for joining us, and we wish you well no matter where your educational journey may lead.